Well, thank you to the musicians, the choir, uh, for everyone who worked so hard so that we could sing without distraction and praise the Lord this morning. What a blessing. What an encouragement that was. Well, when I was a kid, when I was younger, my, my younger brother and I, I have one younger brother, we knew that we were in for a treat when we heard the very first two or three notes of the Star Wars theme song. We knew what was coming. We loved those movies. And so the first couple of notes, it's just very distinct. You would hear those first couple of notes, and we knew after hearing that happened that we were in for Han Solo and Luke Skywalker and R2-D2. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about this morning, I'm sorry. It's your loss. Over the last year or so, my kids, to my wife's chagrin, have started to enjoy Star Wars and have really, really enjoyed the movies. And so now they recognize those first couple of notes and, man, they get excited with anticipation that perhaps we're going to watch Star Wars here in the next few minutes. And the excitement over the possibility of those movies really, uh, really gets them going. And it's those first few notes that create that sense of anticipation and you know what's coming. Since we, we just recently moved here to Michigan about a month ago, uh, I've started to understand the very complex relationship that you all have with the Detroit Tigers and the Detroit Lions. See, the thing is, everyone here longs for them to do well and hopes that they succeed and at the same time has a realistic understanding of what the season is going to hold in, in front of them. I also know that a couple of weeks ago, even with that reality setting in, a couple of weeks ago, baseball season started. And man, there's something about spring coming and the first crack of the bat and the first game, the guy goes out to the mound, starts throwing pitches. Around here, everyone gets excited about what might happen for the Tigers this year. And it's similar to when you hear those first couple notes of, of a well-known song, you know what's coming, and everyone here is excited and anticipating the thrill of baseball season and hoping what might happen down the wire for the Tigers. So whether it's the first few notes of a well-known song or whether it's the beginning of a sports season, the beginning of something sets up a trajectory of anticipation and a trajectory of hope. Now, very often, we don't think of Christ's resurrection in that way. We tend to think of Christ's resurrection, we rejoice in it. I mean, there's no doubt. We are excited. We are thankful. We know that something amazing happened, but we tend to think of Christ's resurrection as something that God did 2,000 years ago in the past tense. And obviously, it was that. It was a historical event that happened but I want this morning for us to let the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, I want Paul to teach us and help us to see that really Christ's resurrection is the first note in a symphony. It's the first pitch in a long baseball season. It's turning the key to start the car and something amazing is happening now and is going to happen in the future because of what happened in that first note of Christ's resurrection. Paul certainly believed that the truth of the resurrection 
mattered significantly. And if you open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's where we're going to be this morning. And Paul wants to to teach us and help us to understand that the resurrection is not just a historical event that happened 2,000 years ago and has no impact on my daily life. He wants us to understand the resurrection should shape the way you live your life this coming week. It mattered significantly, and it does matter significantly to our lives. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 17. Look how Paul thinks of the resurrection as as having impact on our lives today. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Look down at verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We are a bunch of fools to gather here this morning if Jesus Christ has not risen from the grave. And there are many people who would say, yes, that's exactly the point. You are a bunch of fools to gather every Sunday morning, particularly on this Sunday morning, if Christ has not been raised from the dead. But if Jesus Christ walked bodily out of that grave, that tomb some 2,000 years ago, it makes all the difference in the world. And not just because our faith is in a living Savior. That is true. That's absolutely something to bank our hope on. But it makes all the difference in the way we live our lives this week. It makes all the difference in how you and I see ourselves and how we function in our daily lives. And it makes all the difference in our hope for the future. So this morning, we're going to study 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 28 together. And we're going to see two ways that Christ's resurrection matters to our daily spiritual lives. Two ways that Christ's resurrection matters to our daily spiritual lives. And you can see the first one is listed there on the screen in verses 20 to 23. Our destiny is bound to Christ's resurrection. Our destiny is bound to Christ's resurrection. So I told you a couple of weeks ago in the book of 1 Corinthians that really the whole book is Paul addressing problems in the church at Corinth. And so he just goes from problem to problem, and he's trying to instruct them and teach them good theology and good church practice. He's helping them work through various problems. And that's exactly what you find again when you get to chapter 15. Look at verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> he says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And so that was the issue, whether it was teachers or whether it was people in the church, some people were saying there is no resurrection of the dead. No one comes bodily out of the grave. And so then in verses 12 through 19, right before our passage this morning, Paul addresses that teaching or that belief that there is no resurrection from the dead. And he talks about how that has a huge impact on the Christian life. Look down at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So he addresses in that text, 12 to 19, he says negatively, this is what happens if Christ has not been raised from the dead. 
And now, in our passage this morning, beginning in verse 20, he turns the corner and he starts to instruct them positively. So he's given the negative teaching, and now he goes positive, and he says, this is the basic theology. This is Theology 101 regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the importance of the resurrection here. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And now he launches into why that matters, and he launches into what that means for us both now in our lives and our hope for the future. So really, verse 20 is a summary of this first point that you see on the screen here uh, concerning the resurrection. Look what he says about Christ as the one who's raised from the dead. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Right at the heart of Paul's teaching on the resurrection is this funny word that he uses to describe Jesus Christ, the first fruits. Why would he call Jesus and Christ's resurrection a first fruit? What is he hoping to accomplish with that? Well, if you go back into the Old Testament in in Israel, the nation of Israel, some of you are probably aware of this. God required the, the Jewish people to bring the very first sample of their harvest to offer it to him, to show that everything that they owned and had was devoted to Yahweh. Listen to Leviticus 23 and verse 10. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. So put yourself in the shoes of a Jewish person who has come into the promised land, has planted a, a vineyard perhaps, and you see that first cluster of grapes coming up in your vineyard, you had the responsibility to take that cluster of grapes and to offer it as a, as a sacrifice to God and bring him it before him. And Paul here calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. Why does he do that? We're certainly thinking about the Old Testament, and there are two main points of emphasis that he wants to get across here. These are very instructive for us. First, Christ is the first in chronological time. He's the first one to rise from the dead and never die again. He is the beginning. He's the initiator. He's the forerunner when it comes to the resurrection. It's like I told you earlier. He's the first note in the symphony. But second, and I think most instructive for us, when Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection, it is like the first note in a symphony, but you know when you hear that first note that there's a lot more to come. You anticipate the rest of the song. You expect more notes to follow. Listen to how this worked in the original creation, all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. Listen to this. Each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. These plants that God made in the original creation, the very first plants that God put on the earth, 
went about it in a certain way. They would reproduce seeds and fruit after their kind. And so when you put the seeds in the ground, you knew that more plants were going to come according to their kind. Now, I don't think it's accidental that this happened on the third day of the original creation and the beginning of the new creation where the first fruit comes is on the third day. I don't think that's accidental. But the point here is, is that if you had a cluster of grapes and you offered that to the Lord as your first fruits, then you knew that more grapes were coming. And when you think about that, if you have a man rising from the dead, claiming victory over death and receiving a new body free from sin and corruption, then you expect more to follow after that. It's the same way that it works. Now, obviously, when Paul calls Jesus a first fruit, we're not dealing with plants here. We're dealing with human beings, with people. Look at verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 15. For, here's the explanation of this first fruits principle. For, as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. This is the principle. Death comes through one man, the beginning of the human race, the old creation. And so life comes through one man, the beginning of the new creation, the first fruits. And now he gets more specific. Look at verse 22. Now he tells us who he's talking about. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. It's like Paul views all of humanity as really boiling down to two people. It's like he looks over the mass of humanity and says there are only two guys in the whole of creation. There's Adam and there's Jesus Christ. Those are the two people and those are the two pieces of fruit. And everyone is either a seed in Adam or a seed in Christ. And what's the destination of the seeds in those fruits? Well, he says in verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Adam's seed continues to death, and Christ's fruit, the seed in him, continues to life. So in verse 22, you look there and you see these phrases, in Adam and in Christ. What does it mean to be in Adam or in Christ? Well, the reality is, is that all of us, every person in here is born in Adam. That's where you start. You start as a seed in the fruit of Adam. We are born into this world broken and bent out of shape. God created human beings to perfectly reflect his glory like mirrors And when Adam sinned, humans were broken. The mirror was cracked, and now we couldn't, we can't perfectly reflect as we were intended to. We can't reflect God's glory. We were to reflect his glory by obeying his word. But you know the story. Adam made that decision to trust in himself and trust in the serpent rather than trusting in God's word. He turned inward on himself, and he gave himself to sin. And so the result of that was spiritual and ultimately physical death. That's why those in Adam die. They receive death as the recompense for what they've done, for who their father is. 
So since that moment, all human beings are born into the state of being in Adam. They're born spiritually dead. They're born separated from God, unable to fellowship with him because he's holy and we're sinful. We're in Adam. And so death is the natural result of choosing our own path, of going our own way. You and I are not born with a blank slate where we get to write whatever we want onto it and decide which way we're going to go. We're born enslaved to sin. We are born in Adam. We're born spiritually blind. And the reality is, is the only way to receive life is to move from being in Adam to being in Christ. You have to change your destination. You have to change who your first fruit is. In order to receive life, life only comes through the first fruits of Jesus Christ. The reality is, is that what happens to your head happens to you. So the question that I hope you're asking is, so how do I make that movement? How do I go from being in Adam to in Christ? Romans 623 for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. Notice, in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where you receive it. It's in Christ. And then a very familiar passage. How does that happen? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The movement from sin and death, from being in Adam to being in Christ, does not happen because of something you do. You can never be good enough. You can never be strong enough. You can never be smart enough to make that move from in Adam to in Christ. You can't do anything about your own destiny. So how does it happen? Well, Paul would tell us here in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrection guarantees That if you repent of your sins and you place your faith and trust in the first fruits, in the work of Christ, in his death and in his resurrection, then what happens to him will happen to you. And you will be carried along with him and his work will apply to you. Look at verse 23. Paul tells us that some people belong to Christ. Look at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to him. Those who belong to Christ have the same thing that happens to him happen to them. They are the ones who can confidently look forward to the future and expect that they will rise from the dead with Christ. Now, I told you at the beginning that Christ's resurrection is like the first note in a symphony. And verse 23 mentions that that music will reach its crescendo when Christ returns. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming. In the future, this resurrection will happen to all the seed of Christ. And the reality is, is that this resurrection is part of a much bigger story. The resurrection is a key part in this story. It's the, it's the crux of the story. It's when the new creation begins and it makes the rest of the bigger story possible. But it is only a part of that story. 
And so Paul tells us here how the resurrection fits into this much bigger story. And that brings us to our second way that the resurrection matters. Our destiny is bound to Christ's resurrection, so we get carried along with him as we repent of our sins and trust in his work. And then the bigger story is that our destination is built on his reign. This is what the resurrection is ultimately leading toward in verses 24 through 28. You can think of this as the logical end of Christ's resurrection. This is where it's going. His resurrection sets in motion the ending of God's plans. What God intends to happen with all of his creation, the resurrection sets that in motion and assures us that ultimately God is going to reign over everything. Look at verse 24. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So there's deliverance, there's a kingdom that's coming at the end. And to understand what's happening here, we have to go all the way back to the beginning and we have to think about God's purposes for his creation. What was God trying to accomplish in creating earth and creating Adam and Eve? His goal was to reign over the earth through, that's important, through human beings. That's why he put Adam and Eve in the garden and told them to have dominion over the earth. But what stopped them from taking dominion over the earth? What was it? It was sin and death. Adam's fall His sin and ultimately our sin stopped human beings from reflecting God's glory and from taking dominion over the earth and reigning as God intended us to do. And so there has to be a way to open up this, this dominion for mankind. And the way that that has to happen is like in verse 21 where it says, for as a man, by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. The way to defeat sin and death and defeat all the powers that are fighting against the reign of God is through the resurrection of Christ. The Christ's resurrection is the means by which God begins his new creation and sets things in the right order. He restores things to the way that they should be. He's the beginning of this new order. He is the man who conquers death and sin. And so verse 24 gives us this big picture. It's kind of like the introduction to this section. And then verses 25 to 27 explain how this happens. How does Christ deliver the kingdom to God the Father? How does he reign over everything and everyone and deliver all that to God? Verses 25 to 27 explain how that happens. Look at verse 25. For, you can see the word there, for. It's an explanation for He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The goal is for Christ to put all enemies under his feet. Now, if you're reading carefully there, this is actually an allusion back to Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, it's a psalm of David. Remember, David is the one who God promised would have his descendants sit on the throne and reign as king. And in Psalm 110, David is meditating on this future king. And listen to what he says. 
the Lord says to my Lord, so he's thinking about this future king that's coming, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. And you can go on and read that entire psalm later. But David is thinking and expecting that a king is going to come who's going to reign over everything. All enemies would be put under this king's feet. But what David may not have anticipated, and what Paul makes clear here, is there's an enemy that this king will rule over who is the ultimate enemy of humanity. What is that enemy? Look at verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Why? Why is death the the ultimate enemy? Why is death the last enemy to be destroyed? Because death was the first enemy to be introduced to humanity. Death is the one that caused all these problems. Genesis 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's the consequence of disobeying God. And the reality is that ever since this moment in Genesis 2, death has reigned. Hasn't it? Death reigns with an arrogance and an authority that we can do nothing about. Think about it. Death owns us. And there is not a thing that you and I can do about that. Death reigned. Listen to Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for indeed sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. And look at this. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. The point is, is that death reigned. Death has authority. And it still does. Think about the authority that death has over you and I. It dictates who dies and when. You and I have no choice when death comes calling. Our bodies break down. Our minds forget things, and eventually we all succumb to death. And honestly, it's, it's hard for us to even imagine a world where death doesn't rule. We are used to the authority and the reign of death. But let me assure you this morning, based on what Paul says here, that this is not how God intended this whole thing to be. We are not intended to live under the arrogant authority of death. This is not how we're supposed to operate. And ultimately, this is not how things will end up. Christ, the true Davidic king, will subject death to humanity. That's the goal. And that happens through his glorious resurrection. Romans 5.17, a little further in that passage. For if... Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
The point is, you can see in verse 17, a man had to overcome sin and death. And a man, the God-man, did that when Jesus Christ came to earth, died, and rose from the dead. He overcame death and passes that benefit on to all his brothers and sisters, those who are in Christ, who are the seed in his fruit. And so since a man had to do that, look at verse 27. It makes this fascinating. For God has put all things, including death, he has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's what happens through the resurrection. Everything is subject to Jesus Christ. But look what he says next in verse 27. But when it says all things are put in subjection, I know we're only a few weeks into you listening to me preach here, but I think you probably know when it says in this passage, it says it's referring to an Old Testament passage there. Paul is referring there to Psalm 8, and I want you to turn back to Psalm 8 with me for a moment. I want you to see this. Psalm 8 is what Paul's referring to. If you're familiar with the Psalms, Psalm 8 is a psalm where David is meditating on God's glory in creation. Okay? Look at verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. He's, verse 1, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. He's just praising God for his work in creation. But look at what David praises the Lord for as the crown, the pinnacle of his creation. Verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. David is thinking about Genesis 1 and God's purpose for humanity, and he's thinking about how God intended for human beings to reign over the earth. This is like the ideal picture of the way things should be. It's us reigning over the earth. That's what David is picturing here. Of course, sin and death broke this ideal picture. But when you go back to 1 Corinthians 15, go back over there. When David says all things are put into subjection under under his feet, what he's saying is that this Christ's resurrection fulfills this expectation that David had back in Psalm chapter 8. David knew that God intended for human beings to reign. And Paul's saying that is exactly what has happened through the resurrection and through the work of Jesus Christ. He has fulfilled that expectation. He's gained the victory over sin and death. He came to earth as a man, lived without sin, died in our place, and then perfectly rose from the dead and accomplished victory over sin. And his resurrection makes what verse 24 said possible. Go back to verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying or bringing to nothing every rule and every authority and power, including the ultimate enemy, which is death. 
One author said this about this dominion. Clearly, by all dominion, authority, and power, Paul means all competing, corrupted, and perverted dominions, authorities, and powers that have been unleashed through Adam's idolatrous perversion of the reign given him by God in Genesis 1. Christ is victorious over every demonic power, every spiritual power, every political power. But he's also victorious over the rebellion in human hearts. Human hearts are going to bow to him as well. That's our biggest problem. Our hearts don't want to bow to his word and his ways. We want to take dominion on our own without him. We don't want to listen to him. We want to be our own authority, and we think that we know better than Almighty God. I love this proverb. There is a way that seems right to a man. That's how we all operate, isn't it? Man, I I know better. I'm wise. I know what the best way to run my life is and how to handle this. But its end is the way of death. The reality is, is that you can either embrace Christ's rule and reign now and bow the knee to him as Lord with joy and submission. You can do that now, or you will recognize his authority and his reign one day in the future. Philippians 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the authority to the glory of God the Father. And I love how at the end of this passage, it goes right back to God the Father. And that's what you see in verse 28. Look back in 1 Corinthians 15. When all things are subjected to him... Then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, God the Father, who puts all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Between this verse and verse 24, you get this picture of a Roman emperor sending his general out into his lands, and some of those lands have been rebelling against his authority. And he sends this general out in order to bring things under his authority again. And the general accomplishes the mission that has been given to him. And then he returns to the capital city, receives glory and honor for accomplishing his mission, and then hands the authority that he has gained back over to the emperor so that he can reign and be all in all. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did here. And his resurrection is the linchpin of the victory that guarantees his future and final authority over everything. So, Christ is the first fruits. He's the beginning. And his resurrection guarantees that at his coming, you and I are going to come out of the grave bodily and spend eternity with him. We're going to have new bodies and be free from sin. That's our hope, and that's where we are headed. Now, let's think for just a moment here about how Christ's resurrection impacts you and I in daily life. How does this matter this week as you're going through work, parenting, school, whatever it is you're doing this week? 
several points of application and implication here. First, when you think about the reality that every person in this room is either in Adam or in Christ, you are a seed in one of those two heads, and your destiny is determined by who your head is. When you think of your life that way, which is how Scripture would have you think of it, that determines and should determine your identity today. How do you perceive yourself? How do you think of yourself? And your identity determines how you function in the world. So if you're a believer this morning, let me encourage you, find your identity in Jesus Christ. Think more and more this week, I am a seed in the fruit of Christ, and what has happened to him has happened to me. It is as sure right now as it will be one day when I bodily come out of that grave. I am part of the new creation now. I have entered his kingdom, and I'm at this funny in-between time where I live here, but I'm a member of the new creation. And so live that identity out in your life this week. How does that work? Let me just give you one application point of that, one way that that works itself out. So many Christians struggle with a sense of guilt with regularity. We, we feel controlled by our sin. We feel guilty over our sin. That's how we function in life. But when you begin to find your identity in Christ and him as the first fruit, when you begin to recognize that and you begin to think he has won the victory over sin, over death, he has the authority And I am in him. I'm covered with his righteousness. When you begin to think that way, then you begin to live like I'm not responsible to carry this guilt over my sin. Because Jesus Christ has already done that. He accomplished that work. He rid me of sin and of guilt. And so now I can live as if that's a reality. Because it is a reality in Christ for you. So find your identity in Christ His work has paid for your sins fully and completely. The second kind of point of application I would say is sin, death, let me say it this way, death, sickness, and disease are not supposed to be a part of this world. They are for now, but God did not intend, create the world to have sin or have death and to have sickness. Those things are intruders in God's good world. Now, we live in the midst of them now, and God uses those things in our lives. But the point of what I'm saying is, while those experiences are a reality, when you go through pain, when you lose a loved one, when you have a disease, meditate on the reality that one day you will be free from all of that. Those are just intruders into this world Turn your eyes toward Christ's resurrection and understand that he has done everything that needs to be done to rid this world of those intruders. Christ suffered so that we could be free and we could be whole. And we're not there yet, but let that give you hope and anticipation for the world that is to come. And then finally, I would say, as you're looking at whatever's coming in your life this week, Think about the resurrection and notice how Paul ends this chapter. He begins, he he spends most of the chapter building this theological case for why the resurrection matters. 
And then at the end, he builds everything to this amazing climax. Look at verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. It's exactly what we've been talking about. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then look how he turns this. Therefore, in verse 58. That's not just some, this is not some theological idea that's out there. I know we've been talking about some big concepts today in Adam, in Christ, but all of those come to play in our daily lives. Look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I love the end of that. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Whatever you're doing to labor for the Lord this week, it is not in vain. Because this life is not all there is. This is not the end. You are going to rise bodily from the dead if you're a believer And spend eternity with Jesus Christ, enjoying him and rejoicing in the work that he's done. You will have victory over death because you are a seed in the fruit of Jesus Christ. So live in light of that reality this week. Go for it with everything you have. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Give yourself to discipleship, to ministry, to sharing the gospel with people. Do all of that because it's not in vain receives a reward from the Lord. Let that motivate you this week. And let's pray. Father, give us strength this week. Give us hope this week. Hope is such a powerful ally in our battle against sin and discouragement, anxiety, difficulty in this life. Give us hope, Lord. Give us an expectation over what is coming in the future. But Lord, help us not to just pine away for that. Help us to long for it, but help us to live in verse 58. Help us to be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in your work, Lord. Help us to know you. Help us to be in your word, to love you more, and to give ourselves to ministry for those in the body and those outside the body this week, Father. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that he's the first fruits, that his resurrection secures ours. Thank you for what you've done for us. We love you. In Christ's name we pray.